Hi, my name is Tanil Kwerts. I'm a journalist from Namibia. Welcome to the second series of the Climate Justice Central podcast. In this series, we're diving into how countries on the African continent are getting more involved in oil and gas projects, dismantling the fossil fuel industry, fossil fuel expansion in Africa. Today, we're tackling a big issue, the growth of fossil fuels in Africa and the role of the global economic and political power structures. Here's the situation. The current UN production gap report shows that we are absolutely not on track when it comes to the phase-out of fossil fuels in the future. Governments around the globe are planning to produce around 110% more fossil fuels in 2030 than would be consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Despite climate promises, top fossil fuel producers plan even more extraction, costing up to a trillion dollars a year. Some of this is happening in Africa, often funded by countries in the Global North or conducted by companies that are from the Global North. There's this narrative coming out of the fossil fuel industry that is targeted towards uh, developing countries, African countries in particular. And this narrative is telling them you have the right to development. The counter to this, it's precisely because we have the right to development. It's precisely because we have the sovereign right to development in Africa that we should not choose a path of entrapment. Our guest today is Fidel Kaboub, an economist working with PowerShift Africa in Nairobi. He's got great insights on this, from his academic background to his work on the ground in Africa. He will tell us why only a global fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty will bring us back on track towards a renewable future. Well, unfortunately, the, the, the latest numbers from the production gap uh, report uh, produced by the United Nations Environmental Programme Uh, yet again confirms uh, the scientific evidence that's been accumulating over the last uh, several years, which is the following. We are currently on track to extract and burn more than double the amount of fossil fuels that we're actually allowed to extract and burn by 2030. And as you know, 2030 on the climate clock, that's the day after tomorrow, we're essentially faced with uh, an, uh, an, an urgent need to do a couple of things, which is number one, uh, stop adding additional fossil fuel infrastructure immediately. And the sad reality is that we are actually currently adding new fossil fuel infrastructure at the tune of sometimes 500, 600 billion dollars a year, sometimes up to a trillion dollars a year. That is additional infrastructure that cannot be added on and cannot be added anymore. Number two, what this scientific evidence tells us is not only stopping the new infrastructure, but designing uh, a rapid plan for phasing out existing fossil fuel infrastructure and doing this in the context of a just transition, justice for workers in the fossil fuel industry and related industries, justice for countries that are heavily dependent on fossil fuel revenues, especially countries in the global south, and justice for countries who are locked into a fossil fuel energy system and cannot, without assistance, be uh, able to transition to renewable energy system rapidly. So this is essentially the the basic pillars of the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty initiative, 
which is a global initiative uh, calling on sovereign governments to sit down and negotiate a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty and a rapid phase out with a just transition. Uh, and the good news is that this uh, fossil fuel treaty, uh, non-proliferation treaty initiative is gaining momentum, not only from civil society, with thousands of organizations from around the world uh, endorsing the treaty initiative, hundreds of Nobel laureates, scientists, faith leaders, um, uh, and cities around the world uh, calling on their governments to endorse the treaty. And in recent months, sovereign governments, primarily small island uh, states, have actually endorsed the treaty initiative. Uh, and the momentum is building. So many small island nations and civil society groups are backing non-proliferation treaty. However, we obviously need major players to join too. So how do you go about convincing big decision makers to get involved? I mean, without them, we'll keep seeing more fossil fuel projects. As you know, the global south in, in general is not responsible for climate change, is not responsible for the vast majority of, of emissions. When it comes to the carbon budget, most of the global south has not even reached uh, or exhausted its, its carbon budget. It's primarily the historic polluters in the global north uh, that have exceeded their carbon budget and are actually running a climate debt, what we call a climate debt. And this becomes important in the context of, of the treaty because uh, it's the responsibility of the historic polluters to pay and help pay for the transition. Uh, it's not uh, reasonable to expect a continent like Africa that emits uh, less than 4% of global emissions. That's the equivalent of Spain alone in, in actual uh, numbers uh, in terms of emissions. It's not reasonable to expect a continent that is dealing with uh, a serious external debt problem, underdevelopment problems, and uh, problems on of food security, of energy security, to finance its own transition when the historic responsibility lies with the global north. The global north that's actually adding the additional infrastructure and in fossil fuels, uh, say in North America, but also investing heavily in new fossil fuel infrastructure on the African continent. So financing the just transition requires bringing the global north to the table and acknowledging that it has a historic responsibility and it has a responsibility to finance the transition. And it's going to be a win-win for everybody. The question becomes, what kind of transition, under what terms? Are we talking about something like a loss and damage fund, uh, which is yet to be uh, finalized and, and created? Are we talking about the $100 billion a year that was promised almost 15 years ago and was not delivered, and whatever portion of it was delivered was mostly loans that continue to perpetuate a debt trap for the Global South? Are we talking about um, a, a green climate fund, which was established in a more democratic participatory way uh, and yet remains underfunded, heavily underfunded. Even the, the recent conference in, in Germany uh, about three weeks ago um, uh, to bring new pledges to the Green Climate Fund didn't manage to reach even $10 billion of, a, of, a, of, of fresh uh, commitment. So this is the kind of um, financial puzzle that the world needs to address at, at COP28. Who is going to contribute to the loss and damage fund? Uh, at what scale, and who is going to benefit from the loss and damage fund under what terms and conditions. 
European companies tell African leaders that oil will make them rich and help develop their countries. Um, how, how would you argue against this and convince African leaders to join the treaty instead? What's your approach to teaching people to resist fossil fuel exploration? There's this uh, narrative coming out of the fossil fuel industry uh, that is targeted towards uh, developing countries, African countries in particular. And this narrative is telling them you have the right to development. Uh, and it's the narrative that says you have natural resources, fossil fuels, uh, that you can use to extract and export and generate billions of dollars, and that's going to be the source of financing your development. So the, the counter to this, it's precisely because we have the right to development. It's precisely because we have the sovereign right to development in Africa that we should not choose a path of entrapment. And what I mean by that is that we have uh, a world where we have all the natural resources that we need on this continent and the global south in general, the critical minerals that are needed for the high-tech industry, that are needed for the green industrial revolution. We have them on this continent. We have the complementarity of resources and capabilities on this continent to industrialize, not to industrialize by extracting fossil fuels and selling it as crude oil to the global north and then re-importing the more expensive petrochemicals, the gasoline and the kerosene. I mean, if the fossil fuel industry was going to be the source of development, Nigeria would be an economic powerhouse today on the continent. Angola would be an economic powerhouse delivering economic uh, uh, aid and technical assistance to its neighbors. Instead, we're talking about countries that are still energy poor. Nigeria today, the biggest exporter of oil on the continent, imports 100% of its gasoline. Gasoline that is actually illegal to sell in Europe, by the way. So this is not the pathway to development and prosperity. Instead, we have the opportunity to use the critical minerals, to use the complementarity of resources and capabilities, to manufacture clean energy technology for deployment on the continent, not to export to the rest of the world, to deliver clean electricity to the 600 million Africans today who have no access to electricity, to deliver a clean cooking infrastructure and technology to the 970 million people on this continent who are inhaling toxic fumes every day, mostly women and children, by the way. So we're talking about a different approach to industrialization and development, and that is the right to development that we have. Instead, the fossil fuel industry is trying to convince us that we should not leapfrog into the high-tech world. We should not use our sovereign right to industrialize. Instead, we should simply extract fossil fuels for export and remain locked into an obsolete energy system that has not delivered energy security for the continent and will not. I'll give you one example. Imagine 100 years ago when the world was moving towards a transportation system based on the automobile instead of the horse and cart industry. Imagine somebody said, we have a right to development. We're going to use the horses what we have and the cart that we have, and we're going to double down on investments in the horse and cart industry and let the rest of the world move forward with new technology for transportation. That is precisely what is happening now with countries that are told you should invest in fossil fuel infrastructure to be trapped with a, num a massive number of uh, stranded assets, physical assets that will become obsolete in the next decade or two, and then financial assets 
that will become stranded as well. Uh, so what are stranded assets? The International Energy Agency uh, a couple of weeks ago produced its latest report saying that we are on track with these new investments in fossil fuel to essentially produce a massive glut, a massive surplus of production capacity of, of fossil fuels, especially natural gas. Uh, a lot of it is happening on this continent. So what's going to happen to those investments that are being put in place today? The market demand, the global demand for fossil fuels will decline. The price will decline and those investments will fail because the rest of the world is actually decarbonizing and moving to cleaner, uh, cleaner energy sources. So all of these investments are economic traps for the African continent that will produce stranded assets and lock us in an obsolete energy system that does not deliver energy security for the continent. Some in Africa think that since the continent's emissions are only 4%, it's okay to use more fossil fuels. How do you think we can change this view and focus more on sustainable development? Well, it's precisely because we haven't exceeded our carbon budget that we should be the last to phase out existing fossil fuel infrastructure. It doesn't mean that we should be adding additional fossil fuel infrastructure. All of our resources and capabilities should be uh, pushing us to leapfrog into uh, a reliable, renewable uh, energy system, a high-tech industry uh, that should be our opportunity to industrialize on this continent. Uh, the, the problem with relying on fossil fuels as a source of, of development is that you can invest in fossil fuel infrastructure, you can start exporting oil and gas, and it will bring you a rush of revenues, absolutely. But then that rush of revenue will lead to additional industrialization of the kind that kept us trapped at the bottom of the global value chain. And this is what I mean by that. The type of manufacturing industrialization that we are allowed to uh, pursue on the African continent is the kind where you have to import the capital equipment, import the intermediate components, import the fuel to run the factories, right? You export the crude oil and then you import the, the, the gasoline and kerosene and the diesel and the sources of energy you need to power your factories. And then we also import the packaging for the manufacturing. And then we use low cost labor racing to the bottom to produce low value added content. So what we import is high value added content. What we export is low value added content. No matter how much you double, triple, quadruple your exports, you're always locked at the bottom of the global value chain. That is the industrialization that the fossil fuel industry has fueled, and it creates a debt trap in the long term. What we're proposing is not using the fossil fuel industry as a, a source of industrialization, the traditional form of industrialization that was assigned and imposed to us, but instead to develop our own industrial policy using our natural resources and our capabilities with partnership with countries from the global north on the technological front to manufacture the technology of the future, the energy of the future, the clean cooking uh, industry and, and, and infrastructure of the future. And that is the type of industrialization that doesn't require relying on fossil fuel industry. Instead, it builds the basic pillar of development and prosperity, which is energy and food systems. That's, that is the, the other uh, important factor that is often missing from this conversation, which is the fact that we've been locked into a global feed, food system that makes us dependent on core crop imports 
from the global north, wheat, corn, soybean, barley, rice, and, and so on, uh, when we used to be the breadbasket of the world during colonial times. So our industrial policy must prioritize manufacturing not only the clean energy, clean cooking infrastructure for our development, but also manufacturing the equipment and the technology needed to invest in agroecology and to invest in food sovereignty, to restore Africa's food sovereignty. Those are the development priorities that the fossil fuel industry has denied us in the, in the past and is not planning to uh, allow us to, to put in place. The so-called right to development that the fossil fuel industry is pushing on the African continent is saying you have the right to invest in fossil fuel infrastructure, you have the right to export crude oil and, and natural gas and get a lot of cash, but then good luck using that cash to escape the debt trap, to escape the industrialization trap, to escape the food deficit trap. That's the type of conversation that we should be having when we talk about our actual right to development, to industrialize, to leapfrog into the 21st century with sustainable prosperity. There's a lot of pushback against fossil fuel projects in Africa, like in Senegal and with initiatives like Don't Gas Africa. Does this resistance make you optimistic about Africa's energy future? Absolutely. I mean, civil society uh, in, uh, in Africa has been very active, very alert and very conscious of, uh, of these development traps. Uh, you can look at what happened uh, in Nairobi uh, in September. There was the, the Africa Climate Summit with the official Nairobi declaration, official as in from African governments. If you put that declaration side by side with the civil society, people's declaration on climate development and, and so on, and you can see the gap in ambitions, you can see the gap in coherence and focus on what matters for the African continent. Uh, so that, that is something that is reassuring that civil society is, is pushing in the right direction. Some of the demands of civil society have been heard uh, by African leaders, but not enough action, not enough coherence, not enough public discourse on these development traps that the fossil fuel industry is perpetuating on the continent. Uh, that's where a lot of the work needs to, needs to happen over the next few months, over the next few years hopefully leading to COP28 in a few weeks with a stronger, more coherent African position, Global South position on phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, that is, uh, that is the, the missing part from the Africa uh, Climate uh, Summit, uh, from the Nairobi Declaration, and that's always been the missing part from the COP uh, statements and, and the COP policy recommendations, which is calling out the fossil fuel industry uh, not, not to tax them, not to, um, you know, uh, regulate them uh, left and right, but to tax them and regulate them out of existence on time for us to meet the climate challenge. The Nairobi Declaration talks about changing financial systems to help African countries with climate funding. But developed countries aren't really stepping up with the money. Um, how can African countries get the funds they need for things like clean energy transitions? Unfortunately, um, governments in the Global South have been uh, pressured not to bring those demands to the table in, in a more serious manner uh, and have been uh, cornered into a situation where they have to accept what I refer to as financial crumbs 
from the global north. We've heard the United States, John Kerry explicitly saying the United States will not pay climate reparations to developing countries. Um, and we've heard similar statements from, from other leaders in, in the global north. And now the, the only sort of climate finance that is permissible from a global north perspective is either carbon credits and carbon markets. And I'll come back to this because it's a very dangerous distraction uh, on, uh, on, on this continent in particular. Uh, number two, uh, climate finance is going to come in the form of market solutions from the private sector, as in private investment. Private investment that is seeking returns on investments, profits, not, not grants. Uh, the other source would be loans, not grants, from the global north, from the World Bank, from other uh, multilateral development agencies, concessional loans, but loans nonetheless that feed further into development traps. And finally, climate finance will come in the form of charity from uh, foundations like the Gate Foundations and, and, and so on. Uh, so there is no room for grants. There is no room for reparations. There is no room for paying climate debt. Those things have been taken off the table, and that is unacceptable. From a global that should be unacceptable from a global south perspective now the big push for carbon markets which made it into the nairobi declaration and is unfortunately uh, gaining a lot of traction on the african continent we have to realize that carbon credits are essentially a license to continue polluting that is historic polluters in the global north will not reduce their emissions they will buy carbon credits as a license to pollute and pay very little uh, to African uh, governments uh, in particular, because carbon credits in Europe are more expensive than carbon credits uh, in Africa. So it's very small financial crumbs, estimated at best to reach $40 billion total for the entire African continent. So what is the process of issuing these carbon credits? A country like Kenya, a country like Liberia, would essentially give up its territorial sovereignty over vast swaths of, of uh, forests and land and displace local communities that did not cause climate change. Local communities that are actually on the front line of climate change will be displaced from their ancestral land, will be displaced from their pastoral land, and very often not giving any compensation. The compensation usually goes, uh, the carbon credit uh, revenues go to governments that frequently use it to very quickly pay off some of their debt to the global north. In the meanwhile, the middlemen, the companies that actually establish these carbon credits and these carbon markets are collecting the commissions and fees and getting richer off of these transactions. Now, the polluters continue polluting. The polluters pay the little bit of cost for these carbon credits, and that's an additional cost of doing business. And for big companies that have market power, what do they do with the additional cost of doing business? Of doing business, They pass it on to their customers. Many of their, these customers are actually in the global south, so we end up paying for it indirectly. And in the meantime, emissions continue to increase rather than decrease. So that's that's the that's the market solution that uh, that is suggested as one of the major sources of climate finance. It's a false solution. It's a dangerous distraction. It's a tranquilizing drug 
uh, to use the a phrase that Martin Luther King Jr. used in the context of the civil rights movement, where he said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drugs of gradualism and incrementalism. And that's precisely what carbon markets are. There's an issue with green projects in Africa being more for export than local development like the green hydrogen in Namibia. These projects don't seem to be solving local energy needs, however. What's your take on this? where countries like Namibia are still dependent on imported fossil fuels. The vast majority of renewable energy infrastructure that is being built on the African continent in, in Tunisia and Morocco and Egypt and in Namibia and South Africa and other places is actually not to produce electricity to be used for Africa's development, for Africa's needs, but rather to export this green electricity, this green source of energy to Europe. So it's for Europe's energy security rather than Africa's energy security. And, and that includes, in particular, the green hydrogen investments, these more recent uh, uh, sets of investments that are taking place. Uh, green hydrogen, as you know, requires a massive amount of fresh water. Uh, the, the studies that I've seen suggest that it takes 28 liters minimum of fresh water to produce one liter of, of green hydrogen. That is massive. And when you think of a country like Tunisia that's it's been experiencing its worst droughts in, in its history in, in recent years, doesn't have enough water for drinking water, doesn't have enough water for agriculture. When you think of a country like Namibia also that is very water stressed and, and water poor, the solution that we've been told will fix this problem is water desalinization of seawater. Well, the problem with water desalinization is that it's extremely energy intensive because you have to push all that salty water through uh, through the filters, essentially reverse osmosis system. And they say, well, that's not a problem. We'll use uh, solar energy and, and, and wind energy to produce the electricity to push the water through the water desalinization reverse osmosis uh, thing. So that means you need a massive amount of land to produce the solar and wind uh, displacing more communities um, to produce the electricity just to do the water desalinization. And then finally, the green hydrogen that you produce loses a massive amount of energy in the process of delivering it to Europe. So there is about 30% loss of actual energy. So it's extremely inefficient, especially when it's export-oriented to deliver it all the way to Europe, and especially when these investments for green hydrogen are done in water-stressed and water-poor countries and rely on reverse osmosis, water desalinization. It's, it's not the type of solution that we need uh, on, on the continent, and it's not a solution for Africa's energy needs. It's a solution for Europe's energy needs.